0: Today we come to the end of the book of James, and hence our last study in our series of this this short and important letter. Next Sunday we'll begin a series through the Psalms of Ascents. 15 Psalms in the middle there, Psalm 120 to 134. I encourage you to start reading those as we get ready for next week as we work our way through those marvelous psalms that are very purposefully packaged together uh, there within the psalms. Look forward to that. But today we come to the final two verses of James. Now sometimes we come to the end of a New Testament letter, whether in a sermon series or on our own personal Bible reading. We come to those verses at the end of a letter. And how shall I put this It's rather predictable. It feels like you might be reading someone else's mail. There are these greetings to people we don't know, and then a blessing at the end. That's Paul's model in every letter. A string of greetings and a final blessing. Greet so-and-so and and -and so-and-so, and may the Lord bless you. And a couple times he throws in a holy kiss there as well. Peter ends his letters much the same way with greetings and blessings. It's the kind of material that we're tempted to skip over or breeze through in our own private Bible reading. And it's the kind of stuff that's really challenging for the preacher when he comes to it, unless he tacks it on to the verses that came before, which seem to be more substantial. But none of that's relevant for James. Not so with James. The ending of his letter is very different. Let me read the last two verses of James. Chapter 5, verse 19 and 20, and see if this sounds distinct to you if you're familiar with other New Testament letters and how they end. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering Will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Period. The end. That's an abrupt ending. Instead of winding down, James gets even punchier at the end. He's been punchy all the way through his letter, and he's punchier here at the end. These verses function something like an exclamation point on the whole letter. And that's important to understanding the book of James, that it's an exclamation point there at the end in these last two verses. The idea of wandering away from the truth is not just one more new idea at the end. It's not as though James was just working through a list of topics and he had just one more to get to before he signed off. Many people, even Bible scholars, have interpreted James as something like that. Some people refer to James as the Proverbs of the New Testament because it looks like it's just piece by piece, wise sayings on different topics, randomly organized. Some have said that James is repackaging the teaching of Jesus from the Sermon on the Mount. And no doubt there are some verbal connections and some thematic overlap. Some say that James is just a a Christian living 101 kind of letter and instruction. Maybe James is writing about Christian basics to try to get immature Christians to move on to maturity, some say. Well, James is punchy, but he is not random. And he has had this pervading concern throughout the letter, and it is this concern that he now restates with crystal clarity here at the end. So let's start there in pondering these last two verses of James. Number one, there's a pervading concern. His pervading concern is wandering from the truth. We know that this theme pervades the letter because it's bookended within the letter. We find the same word in the beginning and at the end. Of course, we've seen it at the end, verse 19 and 20. One wanders, or from wandering. But turn back to chapter 1 with me. Look at verse 16. You see in verse 16 here. You can't see it in our English Bible, so let me just tell you. When it says deceived, in chapter 1, verse 16, that represents the same Greek word that we have at the end of the book, with wandering in our English Bibles. It's the Greek word from which we get our English word, planets, planao is the Greek word. You might wonder what could possibly be a connection between planets and wandering. Well, to the ancients, stars were fixed. They were in predictable places in relation to each other. But there were these other bright things out there Sometimes out there, sometimes not. Often moving, not in the same place. What do you call these wandering things? Planao planets. The Greek word can also be translated led astray or deceived. It's not difficult to see the overlap in our English words. Deceived, led astray, wandering. When we're deceived, we go astray. When we wander, it's because we've been deceived, or perhaps we're even deceiving ourselves. Deception and wandering have been the devil's playbook since the Garden of Eden. It's a huge deal. It's a huge deal to James, this thing of being deceived. Look on in chapter 1, verse 22, deceiving yourselves. Or verse 26, he deceives his heart. Even leaving that word deceives alone, he goes on to talk about the same concept. Some people say that they have faith, but they have nothing to show for it. Some people think that they're religious, but they're missing A, B, and C. They're deceived. And even though wandering or deceived isn't found in the body of James's letter... We need to understand that James is dealing with different categories where Christians might go astray. Where Christians might prove that they have gone astray, and and hence they're not Christians. His topics are not random in the body of the letter, but they all relate to this one pervading concern. Let me just show you, even though this will be review for many of you, hopefully it will be helpful review, To now, at the end of our study, sort of gather up some findings, catalog and categorize some things. And see how they're all really directed to this one thing that funnels here right to the end. I think there are at least 15 areas in James, topics in James, where he's showing how Christians can begin to go astray or prove that they have gone astray. I want to point out all 15 Yes, all 15. So get your eyes on the page, look down on your Bibles, and follow along as I point out what we've seen. Uh, We'll probably put this on the church blog later this week. um, So don't try to break your wrist writing all this down. You see, like in chapter 1, verse 2 and following, the topic of trials came up. It's related to this thing of wandering. Because in trials, we are either being perfected or tossed to and fro like waves. What's it going to be? James goes on in verse 13 of chapter 1 to talk about temptations. Here he says, thinking wrongly about temptations is to be deceived. It's to wander. In verse 22 and following of chapter 1, he talks about being hearers of the word and not doers. If we're hearers and not doers, we're deceiving ourselves. And at the end of chapter 1, verse 26 and 27, he talks about those who think that they're religious, but they deceive themselves because they don't guard their tongue and they don't care for widows and and orphans and they they don't keep themselves unspotted from the world. On to chapter 2, he deals with partiality in the church. He talks about the problem of chumming up to the rich and shunning the poor. And he says it's inconsistent with the gospel that you say that you've come to believe. He says in the second half of chapter two, the most central part in the longest theme, faith without works is dead. This is central to James. Some believe that they have faith but they have no works to show for it. James insists faith works. It does stuff. It's lived out. In chapter three, he talks about the tongue. And he doesn't just warn and give an exhortation for the proper use of the tongue, but he also gives a test about the source. What's the source of the words? Some words bless, some words curse. What is most, most natural to you? And he goes on to talk about worldly wisdom. Again, it's not just an an encouragement to have God's kind of wisdom, but there's a test inherent in it. What's the source? What do you have in you? Where are you from? In chapter 4, he deals with covetousness and quarrels. And again, it's another test. Do you have friendship with the world? Hence, that's enmity with God. He gives a powerful call to repentance In chapter 4, he moves on to briefly. Verse 11 and 12 talk about judging brothers and sisters sinfully. He says, don't be judged unless you want to be judged. He also talks about presumptuous plans at the end of chapter 4. Remember the businessman who's making business plans without the Lord's sovereignty in view. In chapter 5, James addresses those rich oppressors. They're rebuked harshly. They're called to repentance. But those who are oppressed, those under their suffering, in the verses that follow, they're encouraged to keep on, to wait, to not give up, to keep watching and waiting for the return of the Lord. Very briefly, in chapter 5, verse 12, he, he talks about oaths, and he puts it like this. Empty oaths can be part of your condemnation. They can prove your lostness. And as we saw last week, as Trent showed us from verses 13 to 16 of chapter 5, there's sickness, some sickness which is caused by sin. There's confession that's needed that there might be forgiveness and that there might be healing. Almost each one of these 15 things I've just listed for you give some sort of comment about the implications or the consequences or the end of the road of this habit and this lifestyle in this way. Deception and wandering eventually proves hypocrisy and lostness and these verses talk about hell and destruction in a variety of picturesque ways. And then we come to that summary warning at the end about wandering. With only the added word to others that they will need to help wanderers turn around. Some, James says, will wander from the truth. What truth? Well, you're not wrong to think the gospel. The news of Jesus' death and burial and resurrection for the forgiveness of sins. That's the greatest truth and it's central to James, but it's not just the gospel that he has in mind when he speaks of those wandering from the truth. There are other ways of thinking wrong and living wrong than just embracing another gospel. The truth is, yes, words to be believed and news to be received, but it's also a way, a way to be lived out. It is behavior. Think of how the apostle Paul In Galatians 2, talks about his rebuke to Peter because Peter was having conduct not in step with the gospel, not in accord with the gospel. There's gospel belief, but there's gospel behavior. So wandering from the truth could mean that someone embraces another gospel without totally changing their behavior or engaging in new kinds of sin. There was one individual that comes to mind who was a member of our church that did just that. He didn't adopt any new sin. He just adopted a, a whole new gospel. What's more common, though, is that people wander from the truth in their conduct, in their life, in the embrace of sin, in unrepentance, and then eventually a change in belief follows. I've seen this so much as a pastor. Someone is in habitual, unrepentant sin. Confrontation comes, and at first they may say, I know it's sin, but I don't really care. And maybe they'll talk about circumstances right now, a difficult spouse, or a lot of stress at work, and I need this right now, this Sin, this release. But if it goes on long enough, they often stop saying, Yeah, I know it's sin. They stop they start dropping things from their theological diet and menu. Convictions and ideas about God and about his word start getting reshaped, a deformation, not a reformation. And they start reconstructing a belief system that's more consistent and favorable to their sin. Eventually, they'll just say, yeah, I don't believe that stuff anymore. Now, James doesn't specify only one kind of wanderer. There are degrees and kinds of wandering. Apparently, some people he had in mind, as he wrote, still professed faith, but needed to question it. Some perhaps began to wander in the midst of their trials or as they experienced persecution, something James hints at more than once. Remember, he wrote to those of the dispersion in Acts 7 and in Acts 11. We see the Jerusalem church persecuted and they scatter. They're dispersed. This is their identity in these days, and some apparently were not doing well as they reeled in their trials, and hence they're warned of wandering. Perhaps some began to wander simply by neglecting their brothers and sisters who were more hurting, more suffering, more poor than they were. Some may have been showing a serious kind of wandering, adopting a works-less Christianity. Now, I didn't say a works Less gospel because that's the only kind of gospel there is no works, nothing in my hands I bring. It's by his grace alone and not of our own doing. But for some, apparently, to whom James wrote, faith without works wasn't just their gospel creed but their life motto. And these wanderers, maybe genuine Christians who will eventually wake up, snap out of it, come back and return. Some wanderers will call the elders and ask for prayer and confess their sins. Some wanderers will get so sin sick and delusional and deceived that they won't know the way back home and won't seek a remedy to return. They'll need someone to come get them. And some wanderers will keep wandering even when someone comes. They'll keep ignoring the pleas of their brothers. And eventually they'll prove that the whole thing wasn't real to begin with. And then the end is destruction. This whole thing of wandering, going astray from an earlier confession of Christ, is all over the New Testament. Apparently, it was a problem in the day of James's early letter, but no surprise because Jesus talked about it before. The Apostle Paul talked about it a lot after. Jesus spoke of four soils in Mark chapter 4. If you remember, the second and third soil in this parable was about those who go astray. They confess Christ, they embrace the gospel. They even seem to start off pretty well in the Christian life. But in the end, when trials come or the lure of riches presents itself, they leave it. They don't bear fruit. It's not lasting. It wasn't real. Judas, one of the 12 apostles, was in this category, which we call apostasy, apostate. He fell away. He left it. He went astray. In Matthew 18, Jesus gave us instructions, specific detailed instructions for helping each other to either turn back to the Lord and turn from our sin or to stop thinking that we have genuine faith. In Acts 20, Paul told the Ephesian elders, elders, That from among them would come false teachers. Wolves that want to devour the sheep. It's all over Paul's letters. Listen to this language. 1 Timothy 1.6. Certain persons persons are swerving from the truth and wandered away. 1 Timothy 5.15. Some little old widows have strayed after Satan. 1 Timothy 6.10. Because of the love of money, some have wandered away from the faith. In 2 Timothy 2, verse 17, Hymenaeus and Philetus had swerved from the truth. Or in chapter 4, he says some will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Or at the end of the letter, he says, Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me. And no doubt by that, he means also the Lord. The entire book of Hebrews was written with this concern in mind. Those who had confessed Christ but then turned back to the old thoughts in ways. So Hebrews 3 says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin." What is the theological explanation for these people in this hardening, deceit, this this going astray, this falling away? Well, I don't think it could be any clearer than in 1 John 2.19, where it says there that they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us but they went out that it might become plain that they are not all of us. In this room, everyone is with us, but not everyone is of us. Some in this room in days and years ahead will go out from us. And by that, I don't mean they'll switch churches. Leaving this church does not mean you're going to hell. It may mean you're going to not as good of a church. I'm just kidding. No, that's, that's the salesman in me talking. Don't go, don't go. But, no, it doesn't mean that we leave a church and we're proving our lostness. But as we go out from the community of faith, as we go out from the confession of our sins and go out from the profession of the gospel, we prove we've never really had it. To begin with, because those who have the genuine article, they continue, not perfectly, but genuinely. This is a pervading concern. It was James's primary concern, and it's prevalent in the New Testament. Is it a concern for you, for yourself, about others? Is it a proper kind of concern? By that, one thing I have in mind is don't be surprised when this happens. Jesus promised it would happen. It happened throughout the New Testament's record. And we've all heard stories of it. We all know of people who have given up. and We have a theological explanation for it. Be heartbroken when it happens. But don't be surprised when it happens. On the other hand, Take heed yourself to not wander. This is serious business. Paul said, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. James says, if anyone among you wanders. We began our service this morning by singing, Come thou fount of every blessing. I wonder if we'll ever sing that hymn the same after these three months in the book of James. Let thy goodness, like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Take my heart, Lord, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. But what happens when we stop singing that? When we stop praying that? What happens when we stop meeting together to worship and encourage each other like the Bible calls us to do? What happens when we stop being concerned for our own souls or concerned about sin? When we stop being self-suspicious but instead self-reliant? Well, we need others to go get us. So secondly, there's a necessary pursuit. Here at the end of James, a necessary pursuit. Someone brings back a sinner from wandering. As I said, sometimes genuine Christians go astray for a time and need help seeing where they are, from where they've come, and how to get back home. Sometimes professing Christians, though, start to demonstrate and further prove that they have no business naming the name of Christ or at least they should surely examine whether they should. If it's genuine, then they should stop living habitually and unrepentantly in the sin that they're in. If their faith is not genuine, well, it's only bad news for a little bit. Here's what I mean. If you're here today and you'd say, I'm one of those wanderers, I'm a capital W wanderer. I I know it wasn't real. I know what I did as a kid. It's just what my parents told me to do. A pastor told me to say some prayer. I I know it's been empty. I have read enough of the Bible to know that something's supposed to happen, like something is supposed to spark and something's supposed to go and that's never happened for me despite the fact that I'm in a church today. If that's you, well it's bad news to know That you're lost. But it only has to be bad news for a bit because good news is right around the corner. God saves sinners. Sinners who at one time hypocritically and emptily identified with him and named his name if you're a sinner like that today and you're ready to give that up and to come to him for healing and help, then the good news is right around the corner and God calls you today to do do just that. This is his pursuit. He's the Lord of the heart. Only he can grant this repentance and, and give faith. We'll get to our role As those who call brothers and sisters back from their wandering, We'll get to that in just a bit. But let's not miss God's reclaiming. His calling. Like in Ezekiel 33. I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. But that the wicked would turn from his way and live. Turn back. Turn back from your evil ways. If you've never turned to him genuinely. Hear him call today. Respond for the first time. Or maybe you're a Christian. You've wandered. You're not even sure what degree of wandering you're at or where you are in the path towards a cliff. But you've wandered and you can come back today. Whether it's for the 100th time or 1,000th time, we can renew repentance and again afresh believe on his name. Hear Isaiah 55, come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, he who has no money, come buy and eat, come buy my wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which isn't bread and labor for that which doesn't satisfy? Incline your ear and come, come. Isn't that what Jesus said? Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, trying to save yourself, trying to earn your way. Come unto me, you who labor and are heavy laden under guilt, and I will give you rest. Did you grow up singing that old hymn, Come Home? Softly and tenderly, Jesus is calling Calling for you and for me. Patiently Jesus is waiting and watching. Waiting for you and for me. Come home. Come home. Oh sinner. Come home. Why should we tarry when Jesus is pleading. Pleading for you and for me. Why should we linger and heed not his mercies. Mercies for you and for me. Time now is fleeting. The moments are passing, passing from you and from me. Shadows are gathering and deathbeds are coming, coming for you and for me. Come home, come home. You who are weary, come home. Earnestly, tenderly, Jesus is calling. Come home. He's calling, but that's not the whole picture. He uses us. This word, this plea, this call to come, this turning work, this reclamation project, that's the ministry of every Christian. It is. You see how James words it? Someone brings him back. Someone. I think James is purposefully communicating broad responsibility on the shoulders of the church. Anyone, if anyone brings him back, he doesn't say If someone goes away, call the elders. Even though he just talked about elders in the previous section. If someone's sick, they should call the elders to pray for them. But here he doesn't mention the elders. If anyone is wayward, someone goes after him and brings him back. The Christian life is a community project. It's a body with different parts all working together for growth and for survival. Perseverance is a community project. We can't go it alone. Partly because we can't see ourselves aright. My wife from time to time will kindly point out something in disarray on this body. Nose hairs that have gone awry and need some attention, or my collar is flipped up in the back, and there's a ketchup stain in my shirt. And she kindly points out that I might want to change that before we go do something fancy tonight. And I'm glad for the help. I don't want to walk around like a, a dork. But, but how, how much more important are the sinful stains that we're blind to? Or that we have hidden from others and maybe not hidden so well we need each other in the church god made us to need each other he made us to go together like bricks i've said before what's a brick by itself it's useless it's a giant paperweight it's something vandals use to break windows a brick by itself is nothing but it builds a wall it's made to go together And so Christians are made to go together. And that's why we meet together like this this morning. That's why we keep meeting regularly. We met together to sing songs this morning together, not in our cars or in our homes alone. We could have sung the same songs. We could have listened to Drew and others on a DSC band. We didn't stay home this morning to listen to sermons alone and it be as good as what we're doing here. You could probably find a better sermon online, I'm not telling you otherwise, but, but there's something about the church, being together, being in each other's faces, and in each other's lives, and seeing each other. That's why we're here this morning, that's why we don't just attend a church, but we are the church. We join a church, we commit ourselves to each other in the church, like Hebrews 10 tells us. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promises faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love in good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, sadly, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. We come together to encourage each other. We keep coming together together. As Rick Phillips once said from this pulpit, you can only backslide so much in seven days. It's good, isn't it? We come together in part on every Sunday morning to just make sure we're still believing the same stuff, right? We're still clinging to the gospel around here, right? We're not starting to sing other songs about a different gospel, right? I don't think I'll ever tire from repeating this quote from Mark Dever, you want to know what your new you want to know that your new life is real? Commit yourself to a local group of saved sinners. Try to love them. Don't just do it for 3 weeks or even 6 months. Do it for years. And I think you'll find out and others will too whether your love for God is real and whether your love for those he loves is real. Did you notice that James began our verses today addressing them brothers? Brothers, 15 times he's called them brothers or brothers and sisters or dear brothers. We're related to each other in Christ, we're a family. What right do you have to help me see my sins? That's personal, that's painful, that's that's private, right? Not if we're family, we're family. I don't want the other ladies of the church pointing out a ketchup stain on my shirt or nose hair that's needing trimming or other things of this sort. I have my wife to do that. We're family. My kids can also point out, Dad, you you shouldn't wear that together. That that doesn't work anymore. I, I now listen to my kids about that and do what they tell me to do. Welcome to the '40s. But they're family. What right do they have to say, "Uh, don't do that. We're family. What right do you have to tell me what I'm missing about my spiritual life? You have every right. We're family. I'd be surprised if there isn't someone in your life right now that you're not concerned about spiritually. I'd be surprised. It may not be someone who's on the very precipice of giving up on Jesus, It may not be someone who is about to pull the trigger on a divorce or to start an affair. But how about a Christian friend with a subtle but undeniable growing appetite for possessions and success and things? Maybe you know of someone for whom Sunday morning is a slipping priority and it didn't used to be that way. Maybe there's a friend you have whose tongue is growing out of control with bitterness and cutting others down. Will you tell them? Your family. Maybe you know of someone who is reeling in the midst of trials. And yes, we should weep with those who weep, but sometimes we know brothers or sisters well enough to know that they know better and we've wept long enough, and it doesn't mean we stop weeping, but you might say something like, now listen, you know better than this, you've got to stop questioning God and his goodness, you, you know this. I'm not saying it's easy, but you've you got to guard your words about the Lord in the midst of this trial. Maybe you have a friend who's, he's got a new friend at work with a coworker of the opposite sex, Or maybe a Christian friend is dating a non-Christian. Will you speak up? Maybe someone you know is less interested in the Bible these days than they were before. Or there's just a growing indifference to the things of the Lord. Will you speak up? Is someone coming to mind right now that you need to pursue? How specifically and exactly do we do that pursuit? James doesn't tell us. Uh, other parts of the New Testament give us more information. They direct how we go about this work of, of seeking others and trying to turn them back to the Lord. Let me just rattle off a few things. Our concern must be valid. It must be about sin, not preferences or things indifferent. And it probably should be about a pattern of sin, not just any one sin. It must be done in love, in care, with concern. It must be done gently. Galatians 6.1 says that we're to restore our brother in a spirit of gentleness and humility, knowing that we can also go astray. It must be done with prayer. Ideally, it's born out of a relationship that already exists. Ideally, your love and your care for this person is already known and experienced. It's a given, ideally. But it must actually confront. It's not just being a good friend to someone in this trial of sin that they're in. I hear Christians sometimes talk about an erring brother or sister that they just need someone to walk with them through this. But James doesn't have that in mind. He has turning them in mind, not walking with them. Some people say, well, I just want him to know that I'm I'm there for him if he needs me. Well, he may not know he needs you. James says, go. Go. James is filled with warnings. He, he gets in faces. He, he pokes the chest through his words in this letter. And by the end of the letter, he's calling us to be willing to do the same for brothers and sisters. There are other extra steps that are spelled out in Matthew 18, verses 15 to 17. You can read those on your own. We won't talk about those this morning. They're there as extra measures beyond what James is talking about. James sort of deals with step one out of three or four that Matthew 18 talks about. James doesn't have all the details that the rest of the Bible has about how to confront and love and and, and pursue righteousness with brothers and sisters in Christ. His, His word is brief. and I think there's a real benefit to his brevity. He simply states the concern, wandering. And then he explains what needs to happen. Someone has to go get them and bring them back. Anyone who will go. You see the simplicity to what James says. There's an urgency to what James says. When one of us begins to wander, one of us needs to go get them, help them see it, and turn them around and back to the grace of God. Thirdly, James speaks of a hopeful result. What is the hopeful result? They'd be brought back. And then you will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. Now in just a couple of minutes, we'll think through each one of those little phrases there at the end of verse 20. But let's stop to think about who is doing this. Who's doing this? According to James, it's the someone, it's whoever, that's a word he uses, it's any brother. In other words, it's a human being. It's you, it's me. It's a human being doing this. Now that that makes me a little nervous. I would not have written it this way if God had called on me to write this letter to these people. I, I would have instead preferred to talk about God will bring them back. Jesus will save them from eternal death. And then their sins will be covered. It's God's doing, right? He doesn't word it that way. And I think that implies an enormous responsibility on us. It's not resting on us. We'll get to God's part in just a second here. But, but here, notice how unusual it is and important, I think. James speaks of a rescuer bringing back a human individual, saving his soul from death, and covering a multitude of sins, what an enormous responsibility. So much is at stake. How can we think of ourselves when someone is in this kind of need and God is calling us to this kind of work? If you were on the road and you saw, you saw it had been washed away, and it led straight off a cliff and dropping down 200 feet into the ocean. You would stop your car, I think. Would you say this? Well, well hopefully the people coming will notice as I did. Maybe you'd go on your way, leave them to it. Say to yourself, I've never warned anyone like this before. I'm not sure I know how to do it. The police are professionals at warning people and stopping people where they need to. They have the cones, they have the barriers, they have the lights. We'll wait for police because they, they know how to do it. Would we drive away and say, well, they probably won't listen to me anyway. Or they might think I'm a weirdo if I'm trying to stop them and waving my arms. I, I, <laughs> I'm a little too self-conscious for that. Or even worse, would anyone in this room say, Well, God is sovereign. He can do anything he wants. He gives life and takes it. No. You'd do whatever you could. You'd warn. You'd plead. You'd lay down your life even for someone else, maybe even a stranger. What a privilege! It's not just an enormous responsibility, but it's an amazing privilege that a human being could be used of God to bring him back and to save his soul and to cover a multitude of sins. It's almost blasphemous, but it's true. It's God, and it's true that he uses us. Think of it like this. In God's shop, he uses tools. God is like the mechanic. And he uses us as his tools to accomplish his work on others. So like a wrench or a socket on a bolt in the hand of a mechanic, both the mechanic and the tool are intricately involved. Now since God is the mechanic and he's omnipotent, he doesn't need to use tools. You need to use tools. I need to use tools. God doesn't need to use tools But the omnipotent God, amazingly, most often uses tools. He uses tools. He uses people. So he expects us to grab hold of people and to help them turn. It's his doing, but we play an essential role in, Well, what is it? Bring them back. In Luke 15, there are three parables of bringing them back. The lost coin that's recovered, and the woman rejoices. The lost sheep that's recovered, and the man and all heaven rejoices. And there's the lost son who comes home, and the father rejoices. Oh, how wonderful it is to be brought back. Do you know that in smaller or greater ways? How sweet it is to return to the Lord and to know that his mercy is there every day. How kind it is when a brother or sister helps us to turn and points us back to the Lord. And how good and safe it is to be in God's sweet fellowship. Oh, for more of it. Oh, to be closer. Oh, to stay close all our days. Brought back. He will save his soul from death, not physical death, but eternal and spiritual death. What Revelation 21 talks about as the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. You might know that hell in the Bible is described in symbolic ways, not to make it sound worse than it is, but because it is worse than words can adequately describe in literal terms. And so it's, it's, like a, it's like a parasitic worm eating you from the inside out forever and ever. It's like a, a place where there's so much pain. There's gnashing of teeth and crying and howling. It's the place of God's eternal wrath. You sometimes hear people say, the worst thing about hell is that God isn't there. No, no, no. the worst thing about hell is that God is there in all of his omnipotent wrath. Oh, to be saved from that. That's what James means by death. How sweet and wonderful to be saved like that. Oh, how we need to meditate more on what we've been saved from. How are we saved like that? Well, he covers a multitude of sins. How many? A multitude. Too many to count. Countless. Those are covered. Sealed up. He covers them not by sweeping them under a rug in heaven. But they're covered, according to the Bible, through the payment, through the death, through the sacrifice of Jesus. It's that that covers Our sin. Our sins now are buried in the depths of the sea, the Psalms talk about. Man has not yet been to the actual bottom of the sea. It is so deep. Actually, I have to Google that. Maybe it happened since the last time I said that, but I think that's true. It used to be true. Oh, our sins buried there, no more. The debt paid. The guilt removed. How wonderful to have sins buried, covered, paid for, eliminated. He sees them. He sees none of them. We sometimes sing, well, may the accuser roar of crimes that I have done. I know them all and a thousand more, but Jehovah knoweth none. This is the hopeful result. We hope this is what happens that sins are covered, that a brother is recovered, and that that he's restored. But it's not a given. It's a hopeful result. We go so that they might come back. We want them to come to us so that we return. It's a hopeful result, but it's not a given. Not all wanderers turn back. Some will not listen. So before we wrap this up, let's just turn verse 20 upside down. Sometimes there is a heartbreaking result despite many pursuits and passionate pleas. And the result then is waywardness forever and ever. A soul Dying eternally, forever and ever. A multitude of sins, not covered, not hidden, but exposed, seen, seen by God and judged forever and ever. Flee from the wrath that's to come. Cling to Christ, a welcoming, merciful Savior. And know, Christian, both your perseverance and your pleading with others. It's serious business. May God help us to flee to His mercy and to help each other to do the same. Let's pray. Father, while James writes these final words to those who profess Christ, they also work for those who have not yet come at all to Christ. I'm sure there are some in this room that have never thought that their sins were forgiven and didn't know where to go for the answer. Perhaps today they would cling to the truth. They would embrace the truth that Jesus died in their place and lives forevermore, and lives for them, that we might have not just eternal life, but life to the fullest. Lord, I pray that you'd help us as Christians to come and to keep coming to this welcoming, merciful Savior. With our sin, yes, but we pray increasingly so. If it be your will with less sin, help us, Lord to pursue purity, to flee the temptations, to wander from the truth. Help us as a church to care for each other more than we do, and we thank you for the care that is already there and for the years of care that have been shown. Thank you for the times when you have done this very thing of using rescuers, human rescuers, to turn one back from wandering from the truth. And in the end, Lord, you've covered their sin. You've restored them to fellowship. We thank you. Help us to come as we sing. In Jesus' name, amen.